Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the blessing it is to gather here together around your word. We pray that by your Spirit you would minister to us as we do, that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us, and that you would open our hearts to receive your word this evening. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our reading this evening comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 5, and that can be found on page 801 of the uh, church Bibles and on page 1012 of the children's Bibles. Reading from verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." Well, it's a a real uh, privilege uh, for Rosalind and I to be here with you this evening. Um, I was saying to the the missions class this morning that that Grace Church Leith didn't actually begin in our apartment uh, in 2010. It actually began uh, with a vision from this church to see a church planted in Scotland. Before there was a church planter uh, or any church plant, there was a, a heart and a desire uh, from the people of this church to, to see something happen in Scotland. And, and actually, I then came on the scene a little bit later and uh, I had to pass the ARP ordination exam in order to, to take up the role. Um, what you may not have been aware of at the time, the day of the exam, uh, we knew that after the exam, we were coming back from Gastonia here to Columbia for a dinner where 300 people had already planned to turn up. Uh, So I thought I'd better get that exam passed or it could have been a a bit of an embarrassment. Um, But we are so grateful uh, to you. We are very, very conscious of the partnership that we have in the gospel. We we see you very much uh, as Uh, a great blessing to the work that we are doing uh, as parents in many ways to our church plant. And uh, we are are so grateful uh, for your prayers and uh, for the incredible generosity that you have shown us over the years and and more recently as we've been able to purchase this building, which we just could not have done uh, without you. So we want to thank you for that. Uh, And it's a real blessing uh, for us when we are able to welcome some of you to Leith over the years. 
Uh, some of you have made the trip uh, when you've been visiting our city to come along to the church, and that's always a real uh, blessing to see you. And uh, obviously, if you've visited Edinburgh, then you are well aware uh, that there is no finer city in the world uh, than the city of Edinburgh. Uh, it is an impressive place. Uh, we have over, I think, about 20 uh, different nationalities in our church at the moment. Uh, people come from all over the world to live uh, in Edinburgh. And something that catches them by surprise when they first come in that first year, often they arrive in the summer, uh, and you know the weather is not great in the summer, but it's bright. Uh, but come the winter, people are not prepared for what is coming. Uh, we have long winters, and we have dark winters. Now, December is okay. Uh, you can kind of get through December because we have the German market in town. There's lots of nice lights, a, a big Christmas tree, uh, and lots of parties. Uh, so, so Christmas, uh, December is okay. But when it comes to January and the lights come down and the festivities are over, uh, that's when it really hits people. Um, the sun rises sometime around 9.30 and sets around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so those uh, dark mornings, those short days, they make uh, January a long, hard slog. Uh, and there's a sense in which, for some of us, the last few years may have felt a bit like a, a long January in Edinburgh. Uh, what I've seen uh, in our part of the world, at least, is that the, the challenges of recent times have, have impacted people in a variety of different ways. For some, they've been left with the, the larger questions about their lives and their place in the world. And they've found themselves asking the question, where can I find certainty in a world that is full of so much uncertainty? In the last year, we have seen more people than ever before uh, turning up at church with no background in Christianity. Uh, they come because they are looking for answers, answers that they are not finding in a world where so much has unsettled them. Uh, for others, uh, as they look to the future, uh, they've just got to the point where they are really struggling for any real enthusiasm or optimism. They've become apathetic about life. And for some, that sense of apathy has crept into their relationship with God. For some, they're just going through the motions, turning up to church, but struggling to feel any real sense of, of God's presence. For others, they've just uh, given up even trying, and they've stopped going to church altogether. And of course, that's not just the case in Scotland, is it? It's increasingly becoming an issue here on the other side of the Atlantic. In their book, The Great De-Churching, Jim Davis and Michael Graham estimate that 40 million Americans have left the church in the past 25 years. It's an alarming statistic. And there will be various reasons for it. 
But among those reasons will be that same sense of apathy when it comes to God, where folks have eventually just given up going through the motions and decided to do something else with their Sundays instead. Apathy has even led to cynicism about God for some. And maybe for some of you, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you may recognize something of that, that apathy, that cynicism creeping into your own heart. Well, if that's you, then the book of Malachi is a great place to turn because it's, it's a book that is written to a people who are very much in the same boat. It's a book that acts as a, a wake-up call for those who have become cynical about God's love, a book that if we take its message to heart, it ought to reinvigorate our relationship with God and our confidence in His promises. It's a book that ought to fill us with hope as we lift our eyes to Him, as we look to the future, whatever we may be feeling in the present. It's a book that, that declares God's love in a time of apathy. And that's exactly where the book begins. If you look with me at verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So, so right at the beginning of this book, we learn that what follows is a message from God to his people through the prophet Malachi. Malachi was writing sometime around 450 BC. The temple had been rebuilt about 50 years previously, and God's people had returned to the land. But nothing much seemed to be happening. No sign of miracles, no sign of God's promised king that the Israelites were waiting for, and they were living under the thumb of a foreign nation. The people, they were just going through the motions with seemingly nothing much to get excited about. And it's into that situation that God speaks. And look what he tells them, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Apathy, cynicism, they arise from a focus on self, on my feelings, on how I perceive the world around me and the thoughts and the intentions of others. There's been a lot of talk in my country about the, the long-term impact of the last few years on people's mental health. Uh, maybe there have been similar conversations here. When you endure enforced isolation and a loss of community, that tendency to bend in on ourselves is heightened. And that can manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. Anxiety and depression are obvious ways that have been highlighted over the last couple of years. But apathy and cynicism would also be ways in which that heightened focus on self has shown itself. Alongside that, we have seen the rapid rise of radical individualism in the West, a philosophy that says that my identity is defined by how I feel. To find out who I truly am, to define the world around me, I need to look within, to my feelings. 
So what you have is this toxic recipe of self-centered thinking that has been intensified by enforced isolation and a prevailing worldview that emphasizes the primacy of the inner self. And that manifests itself in lots of damaging ways, not just ways that damage ourselves, but ways that damage others as well. And certainly, if you were to read on through the book of Malachi, you'd see some of the ways that that self-centeredness plays out. But notice where this book begins. It doesn't begin with the people. It doesn't begin with their feelings. It doesn't begin with how they view the world around them. No, it begins with God. And it begins with God making the most extraordinary statement to a people who had turned in on themselves and turned away from Him. I have loved you, says the Lord. God begins by reminding His people of His love for them. I love you. Those are three incredibly powerful words, aren't they? Words that bring joy, words that bring comfort, words that bring hope. But of course, those words, they only mean something when they're expressed by someone who knows us and who has demonstrated that love through their actions. Walking up to some random person in the street and telling them that you love them, that is not going to mean much to them. Uh, It's probably not advised if you're in Scotland to try that. (laughs) You know, they have no framework for, for recognizing if what you are saying is true. But expressing your love to your spouse or your children or to a deeply valued friend, that means something because they can look at the ways in which you've demonstrated that love over the years. God's expression of love for Israel. Notice it's in the past tense. Now, that doesn't mean that He once loved them, but He doesn't love them anymore. No, He is pointing to the fact that His love has been demonstrated throughout their history. And that's what makes their response in verse 2 so heartbreaking. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, this is not the response of an open-minded questioner wondering about the many ways in which God has loved them. No, it's a closed-minded, cynical response from people who should have known better, a people who were so consumed by the bitterness of their present circumstances that they paid no regard for the way that God had demonstrated His love for them throughout their history. Life wasn't going the way they wanted it to. And so their response was to take it out on God. 
to demand that he prove his love for them, that he do better, that he meet their needs. Their response showed a complete lack of love and trust towards God. And it was that lack of love and trust in God's love for them that set them down on, along the downward spiral that plays out in the rest of this book. Throughout this book, they cynically question God at every turn. Their lack of love for Him, it leads to a lack of worship, which leads to a lack of obedience, which leads them into serious sin, which causes incredible harm to the people of God. When we grow cynical about God's love for us, that leads to bitterness and hostility towards God and towards His people, which then works itself out in all kinds of damaging ways. I wonder, how would you respond if someone that you loved deeply threw that love back in your face? A family member, a Christian brother or sister, a friend. Maybe you've had to endure that incredibly painful experience. If you found yourself in that situation, then the temptation would certainly be there to have nothing more to do with that person, to end that relationship. But notice that despite their complete lack of love for Him, God graciously responds in love to them. He answers their question. Look with me at verse 2. The people cynically ask, how have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what are we meant to do with that response? God says, you want to know how much I love you? Well, I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now, maybe that's not the kind of thing you would expect to hear God say. So how do we make sense of it? Well, what God is doing here is reminding the people of their history. And he goes right back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. And he reminds them of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The boys were twins. And as you'll know, Esau was the older of the two. So by right, he was the one who should have inherited God's blessing from their father Isaac. But instead, God gave that privilege to Jacob. And it was out of the family of Jacob that the nation of Israel was established, while Esau's descendants were the Edomites that we read about in this passage. And so when the terms love and hate are being used here, it's not hatred in the sense that we, we, may, we may use it in, in terms of personal animosity towards someone, no, it's talking about God's decision to choose one brother over another through whom he would fulfill his purposes, to enter into a special relationship with Jacob and his descendants rather than with Esau and his descendants. And that was the privilege that was given to Israel. Six times in these opening five verses, we see the name of the Lord 
in block capitals. And wherever we see that in the Bible, it's a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. It was the name that God gave his people to call him by. It was a name that that reminded God's people of their covenant relationship with him and the privileges that that entailed, of how they could enjoy an intimate relationship with God and trust in his promises to them, how they could, could know his blessing. It was a name that reminded them that Yahweh loved them, that he had chosen them as his own, and he would work out his purposes through them. God's love for his people was so lavish, so generous, so steadfast, that anything else looked like hatred by comparison. And this is a theme we see in the New Testament when Jesus says to his followers that anyone who who comes to him and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, cannot be his disciple. Jesus is not saying that we need to literally hate those nearest and dearest to us. That would be a denial of his call to love one another. No, he's saying that our love for him, our devotion to him should be so great that anything else looks like hatred by comparison. And that's a in a sense, the dynamic that's going on here in Malachi. God's love for his people was so great that anything else looked like hatred by comparison. But even allowing for that, what's clearly stated here as the primary evidence of God's love for his people is that he chose one brother over another, that he gave his blessing to Jacob and not to Esau that his covenant was with Israel and not with Edom. And we might be tempted to ask, how is that fair? How is it fair that God would choose one and not the other? How is it fair that he would choose to be merciful to one and not the other? How is it fair that he would choose to work out his promises through one and not the other? Well, the answer is, in a sense, uh, that it isn't fair. If you go back and read the story of Jacob and Esau, you'll find in Genesis chapter 27, uh, you'll see it there. You'll see that, that Jacob was no more deserving of God's blessing than Esau. Both Jacob and Esau, they were guilty of sin, of selfishness and self centeredness. Esau trod on his birthright, he sold it for a pot of stew. And Jacob was guilty of lies and deception. Both of them were guilty of selfishness and self-centeredness. Neither brother deserved God's blessing. If God was being fair, then, then both brothers would have been condemned for their behavior. Both Israel and Edom deserved the judgment of verse 3 and 4. But God in his mercy chose to bless Jacob and through Jacob the nation of Israel. They didn't do anything to earn it. They did nothing to deserve it. And yet God committed himself to them. He entered into a covenant with them. He saved them from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. He promised to dwell with them and their descendants. He promised to provide for them. He repeatedly delivered them from their enemies. He was merciful to them, 
despite their sin and rebellion, he answered their prayers. He kept sending them prophets and and priests to, to remind them of his love and promises to them. And he promised them a king who would one day rule forever in love and justice and peace. And here they were, back in the promised land, after exile in Babylon, worshiping at a rebuilt temple. They would not even have existed as a nation if God had not remained steadfast in his love and faithfulness to them. These cynical, sulky people had lost sight of the words of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 23, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Words that were written for them. They'd lost sight of the wonder of God's mercy and grace in their lives, a mercy and grace that had been lavished on a disobedient and rebellious people for generations. A mercy and grace that despite their sin, despite their ungratefulness, was still being offered to them amidst their sulking. This passage, it closes with a wonderful promise from God that these ungrateful people would see for themselves the wonder of God at work. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What an incredible promise from a wonderfully gracious God that despite their cynicism and bitterness towards him, God wasn't finished with his people. Far from it. He met their gripes with a glorious promise. You see, the Bible is clear that God is perfectly just and fair in all his dealings. And at the same time, he is merciful and gracious. But how does that work? How can God deal justly with sin and rebellion and yet be gracious to a sinful, rebellious people? How could he enter into a a covenant with Israel and promise to be faithful to them when as a just God, they deserve the same judgment as Edom? Well, the answer is found in the one who fulfills all God's promises, the promised king that Israel had been waiting for. You see, maybe this evening you find yourself in a similar place to these Israelites. Maybe you are enduring bitter circumstances. Maybe things are not going the way that you want them to in life. And maybe that's led to some bitterness towards God. Maybe you're cynical about God's love for you. Well, can I urge you to turn to the one who offers mercy and grace even to cynical hearts, to reflect on the fact that you have far more reason 
than even these Israelites had to revel in God's love for you. See, like Israel, none of us deserve God's mercy. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. What we deserve for our sin is God's just and holy judgment. But in His mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He gives us Jesus. When God says to His people today, I have loved you, we don't just look back to His dealings with Israel in the Old Testament as as wonderful as they are. We don't just remember His rescue in the Exodus or the way that He repeatedly forgave and delivered His people in the time of the judges and kings or the way that He brought His people back from exile and, and rebuilt the temple. No, we have far more reason to be sure of God's love for us this evening. And that's because it is a love that has been fulfilled at the cross. It's at the cross where we see God's wrath and mercy meet in the sacrifice of our promised King, Jesus Christ. The one who died in the place of sinful people. The one who bore God's judgment that we might know grace. Does God love me? Peter Adam writes, if we try to answer that question in terms of how we feel or in terms of how blessed we are in the way that God has met our needs or desires or in terms of comparing ourselves with others, we may at times doubt God's love. The overwhelming and convincing proof of God's love is that he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve but has had mercy on us in Christ Jesus and his atoning death. When God says, I have loved you, we can lift our eyes to Jesus. We can look to the one who bore the punishment that we deserve so that we might know God's mercy. We can remember the one who has saved us from the just judgment of God, even though we have done nothing to deserve it, and could never possibly earn it. We can rest in the fact that if we have put our trust in Christ, then our past is completely forgiven. All our sin, all our shame has been nailed to the cross. And we now wear the perfect spotless robes of our Savior, cleansed, renewed, blameless in our Father's sight. And we can look forward with hope and confidence because the one who died rose to life again, securing for us an eternal future as the risen and reigning King. And it says we lift our eyes to Him as we place all our present circumstances, however bitter they might be, in the context of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's then that we can see how He's loved us. And we can begin to respond to that love, to love Him passionately, to worship Him wholeheartedly, and to live every day for Him in response to His glorious grace and love.
in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that it is a love that you have demonstrated to us. As we look over the way you have loved your people throughout history and ultimately the way that you have shown it to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, our our status before you or how much we are loved by you is not based on our circumstances, on our achievements, on our performance. It is a love that you have secured through the atoning death of your Son. And so we pray that you would lift our eyes to see you afresh, to remember your love, and to delight in it and to respond to it as we live for you. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.